I have the task today to present to you a sermon that I cannot do justice with. We believe that God has spoken in his word. We can say that, we can talk about it, we can talk about the Bible and what it means to our lives, we can talk about what the Bible means to the world, to the culture, we can talk about what it means that God has given us his revealed word, but let's be honest, we cannot do it justice either in talking about how important it is for us to read it daily, to meditate on it, to memorize it, to focus on it, to base our theology only upon God's Word and not upon experience. We can't overemphasize the Bible. But when we try, we are accused sometimes of worshiping the Bible. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible. But how do we know about the God of the Bible? We know about the God of the Bible through general revelation and then special revelation, which leads us to a humble response, and that is our text in Psalm 19. Two weeks ago, we walked through the first portion of this text, Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. Today, we're going to look at Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, where it talks about special revelation, and then we're going to conclude again with the proper response to general and special revelation in verses 12 through 14. Today, we focus on Scripture. General revelation, specifically in this text, as you're turning to Psalm 19, it shifts from Psalm 19, verse 1, where it talks about God in His most generic name, El, just meaning that generic understanding that there is a God that exists out there because we look out at creation and we understand that something created all of this and that something is God because there is order, there is intelligent design that has been formed as we look around at the heavens and the sky, as we look to our own conscience which convicts us of sin and we realize that there is a God. But that God in this context of Psalm 19 shifts And it begins here, if you'll look in verse 7, to say the law of the Lord. And the word Lord there is Yahweh. It's the personal name of God. Because we move from a generic understanding that there is a God that exists to the scriptures telling us about that God, who that God is, what that God expects, what that God has done for us by creating us, what we have done by sinning against our creator, and what God has done by sending his only son to die on the cross to reconcile us to our creator. And it tells us how it's all going to end that God is coming again as the judge to set things right, to recreate the heaven and the earth, and to put everything as it should be. It moves from general revelation to special revelation. It moves from El to Yahweh, but then it concludes in verse 14 when it says, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And the right response from general revelation is to seek special revelation. When you move into special revelation, you understand what God has done, and the proper response there is humility and repentance that leads you to say, my rock and my redeemer. And that's the transition that we see happening here in Psalm 19. Think about the Bible. The Bible itself is a masterpiece. It's written over 1,500 years, has about 40 human authors. It has authors from fishermen like Peter, to historians like Luke, to political figures like Daniel, prophets, apostles, shepherds, and kings. Three languages, the Old Testament written primarily in Hebrew with some Aramaic, the New Testament written in Greek, 66 books contained in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, 
organized by genre of literature primarily, where you have the law and the first five books of the Old Testament. You find that uh, the poetic books and wisdom literature are grouped together. You see that the prophets are grouped together. You see that in the New Testament, you have the biographies of Jesus Christ, the testimonies about his life in the gospels. You have the letters to the churches grouped together in the New Testament. In the Bible, we see 1,189 chapters, 929 of those in the Old Testament, 260 chapters in the New Testament. And we understand that those chapters were not in the originally inspired text, but those were added later around 1200 AD. Why were they added? It's the same reason you have a street address or you have a room name. It helps us to find the location. And so for the same reasons, we have a postal system with different mailing addresses. You have addresses that will allow us to say, turn to Psalm chapter 19. Turning to the chapter was very helpful, but we also discovered over history that verses within those chapters would be helpful. And so you'll find roughly 31,000 verses, just over 23,000 in the Old Testament, 7,950 in the New Testament. Those were added around 1500 AD. So when you read your Bible, and you come to a really awkward pause as it goes between one chapter to another chapter or one verse to another verse, and you think to yourself, especially if you're studying in the original languages, I don't know if this is the right breakdown. It's okay because those chapters and verses are not inspired, they're not infallible, they're not inerrant. They were added to be helpful to us. They are tools so that as we memorize scripture, we understand where it belongs in the book, in the chapter, in the verse, but understand that These books were written not to be read as individual verses, but to be read in proper context. The chapters help us, the verses help us, uh, but they are not inspired or infallible. We talk about the Bible in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And as we talk about it in the Old and New Testament, sometimes we have a false dichotomy that we set up in our own minds because we think the Old Testament means it's old. And old is not as good because we always want the new iPhone, right? That was for the new iPhone, not for what I'm getting to next, right? Old Testament and New Testament usually is given to, attributed to origin who lived about the second or third century from Jeremiah 31 about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. But you can't misunderstand that discussion to think that the Old Testament is irrelevant and that the Old Testament doesn't matter because it's the Old Testament that provides the foundation and the basis for the New Testament. And the New Testament often refers back to the Old Testament. And so as we read through our Bible, we should not neglect the Old Testament to exclusively read the New Testament. And if you're going to be a preacher or a teacher one day, you should not teach just out of the New Testament. We understand the New Testament tells us about Christ, but the Old Testament also reveals to us about God and about who we are. And so the entire Bible, the Old and the New Testament, are both beneficial for us. The Bible itself is really not just one book, although it is a book by one author about one subject, and Jesus is the hero of the book. And to have that with 40 different human writers over 1,500 years itself is amazing. But the Bible is a collection of 66 different books. We read them all because they are all important, even the genealogies. Now, as I talk to you about reading the Bible, if you have never read the Bible, and statistics say to us, there was a 2013 study that says to us that roughly 57% of 18 to 22-year-olds have not read the Bible. If you're in that category and you have never read the Bible completely through, during your time at Cedarville, we want you to read the Bible completely through. 
How can you really claim to love Jesus and not read the Bible, which is his letter to us, to tell us who we are and who he is and how we should live? If you're going to read the Bible all the way through, though, make sure that you're reading it wisely and that you continue to plug through Leviticus and through the genealogies. And that's one of the reasons that my Bible reading preference is an Old Testament passage, a New Testament passage, a Psalm and a Proverb every morning. Keep plugging your way through and read the Bible. Even when you get to the parts that you may not think are as beneficial for you, it's all in there for a reason because God inspired it. God has it accumulated for us as his word. Now, as I look at the Bible and I think about it, I remember hearing David Jeremiah uh, as he released the Jeremiah Study Bible, which we are so honored and thankful to have a Cedarville edition of. And he gave some statistics about the Bible. I want to give some of those to you. He said the Bible is the best-selling book of all time and the best-selling book every year. Look at some of these stats on the screen. There are 50 Bibles sold every minute. There are 72,000 Bibles sold every day and 26,000 Bibles sold every year. An estimated 6 billion copies of the Bible are in existence. Now, how many of you have four Bibles or more in your house at home? Raise your hand. How many of you have four Bibles or more in your dorm room right now? Raise your hand. You can count electronic Bibles, and so we all then on our iPhones have four Bibles or more, right? Now, my point to you is this. We have copies of God's Word all around us, and sometimes familiarity leads us not to realize what a special treasure we have. Sometimes we don't read it as often as we should. Think about the Bible in contrast to some of the other best-selling volumes of all time. A Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens, usually comes in second at 200 million copies. Lord of the Rings from J.R.R. Tolkien comes in at 150 million copies. All right, now, if you cheered that loud for Tolkien and you don't cheer that loud for the Bible, we got a problem. I'm just saying some amens later on. I'm expecting that to come, right? You think about the Bible. You think about what we do in the arts here at Cedarville. You think about paintings like The Last Supper, inspired by the Bible by Leonardo da Vinci. You think about the wedding at Cana. You think about the Sistine Chapel and Michelangelo. And particularly, in my mind, I think about the creation of Adam as the two fingers are touching. You think about how the Bible has inspired sculptures like David, The Gates of Hell by Rodin. You think about how the Bible has inspired timeless music like Handel's Messiah. It contains poetry, and it has inspired poetry. It has poetry that is intended to be set to music and song, and some of the finest lyrics of the world have come from the pages of the Bible. Poets, songwriters, playwriters, musicians, novelists, short stories are filled with references to the Bible and biblical themes and archetypal Christ figures. Historians and archaeologists study and write about the locations where biblical events happened in the civilizations of the Bible. The Bible has changed every aspect of culture. Think about some of these popular cultural sayings that exist that some people don't even know come from the Bible. Can you read the writing on the wall? From Daniel. He has feet of clay, also from Daniel. A house divided cannot stand. A scapegoat. Casting pearls before swine. He's the salt of the earth. He's the apple of my eye. 
You think about these sayings in culture that even lost people don't understand. These come from the Bible. Even politicians are judged by their knowledge of the Bible or made fun of as creating their own Bible. Just ask Donald Trump about that. Presidents are sworn in by putting their hand on the Bible. If you go to court to serve as a witness, you raise your right hand, put your left hand on the Bible, and you swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God. The Bible has impacted every portion of our society. Have you read it lately? Have you meditated on it? Not for class. Not as part of an assignment, but do you truly treasure God's word, not because we idolize it, but because of the God it reveals? Let's turn our attention to Psalm 19, verse 7, and if you would stand in honor of the reading of God's word. It says here in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commands of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin. Let not them have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Dear Lord, today as we look at your word, Father, may you impress upon us its importance to our daily lives. And God, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And you may be seated. Of this particular psalm, C.S. Lewis said, it is the greatest poem in all the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in all the world. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said of the transition from general revelation to special revelation, he said, he is wisest who reads both the world book and the word book as two volumes of the same work and feels concerning them, my father wrote them both. We have looked at the world book in Psalm chapter 19, verses one through six. Now we move to the word book and what it says to us in chapter 19, verse seven through 11, and then our response in 12 through 14. I have broken down for you the repetition that we see in verses seven through 11 up here on the screen. You'll notice on the screen that as you look at this, it is written so that these words all symbolize the law of the Lord, scripture, the testimony, the precepts. The word fear is slightly awkward put into this particular uh, dichotomy here, this particular uh, layout. But you look at what it says about the word of the Lord. You look at what it says it does. You look at the results here and you can see the parallelism of all of this as we walk through Psalm chapter 19. The law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the rules of the Lord. It's sure, it's perfect, it's right, it's pure, it's clean. They're true and righteous. What do they do? They revive the soul. They make wise the simple, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes, enduring forever, 
Your servant is warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward. You see the parallelism that's here in this particular section of Scripture. As we walk through it, you can see first it starts off with the law of the Lord, and it's perfect. There is no error in the Bible. When we look around at nature and we look around at what we see and we think we have found an error between what science may tell us or what's in the Scripture, then either we have misunderstood general revelation, we have misunderstood the Bible, or we have misunderstood both. The Bible is perfect. There is no error. The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives our soul. God is a God who cannot tell a lie. God is the author of the Bible so that Scripture speaks of it as God breathed because God cannot tell a lie and God is behind Scripture. Scripture then cannot tell a lie. We can trust it. Not only can we trust it, we understand that it revives our soul. And in the sense that it revives our soul, we understand that you cannot come to salvation in Jesus Christ without the Holy Spirit and without Scripture. He said, now, wait a second. I was saved with somebody sharing their testimony, but they shared their testimony and they shared what God had done because of what they had learned through scripture and that we must repent and believe in a man called Jesus Christ, who was the God man who went to a cross and died in our place and for our sakes and then rose again. It is scripture that revives our soul. It is scripture that helps our soul to live and to be connected to its creator. It is scripture that we should look to to revive us continually. It says here, the testimony of the Lord is sure. Have you ever put your faith in something that would let you down? Any Cleveland Browns fans in the room right now? (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I I couldn't resist. It's not like my team did much better. The Steelers got beat this past week too. I, I I don't know if they're clapping because the Steelers got beat or because they like the Steelers. I'm not sure which one, but we'll take it that you all like the Steelers. So We'll move on. This says that when you put your faith and your trust in the testimony of the Lord, it's sure. You can trust it. You can understand that it's going to rely upon, you're going to be able to rely upon it. It's not going to let you down. It makes wise the simple. If you're in the room and you're like me, you're just a simple person. You need Scripture to help make you wise. Scripture teaches you what the Lord tells us about life and how we should live our life. And if you think you're the smartest individual in the world, don't think you're too smart for Scripture. You look all throughout the history of the world, and there have been those great philosophers who have said that Scripture will go away, that Scripture will die. And the only thing that's happened is that those great philosophers have died and that Scripture still stands today. Scripture is sure. It makes wise the simple. Look at what it says next. The precepts of the Lord are right. You're looking for truth. You're looking for what's right. You're looking for what's wrong. It tells us here, David writing in the Psalms tells us the precepts of the Lord, they're right. Rejoicing the heart. In those times when we are wondering, God, where are you? In those difficult moments where our hearts just feel like they're in the middle of a desert. It tells us that this rejoices our heart. Does Scripture rejoice your heart? Have you learned to read Scripture in such a way that it brings to you great joy, great comfort? Because whatever you're going through, you understand that God had a plan long ago before we ever existed. And His plan will not be thwarted by devil, by the sin, by the evil that's in this world. Do you, when you read Scripture, do you get a joy? Have you ever read scripture and all of a sudden just felt the presence of the Lord around you in such a way that you know it's true? 
you know what he's saying is true and you can trust it and you can live your life by it and you understand that no matter what happens on this earth, it's gonna be okay because God has told us how it ends and what's gonna take place. Have you come to that point as you read scripture that you understand in your own heart that it is true and it causes you to rejoice? Oh, if you haven't, I long for you to develop a relationship with your creator in such a way that when you read the Bible and you meditate upon its words and you memorize its words so that you might not sin against him, that it brings joy to your soul. When you go through those dark moments, those deep times, and you need something to rely on, something that is sure, something that is true, something that will not fail you, that something is God, and we learn about God through the pages of Scripture where he has revealed himself to us. It rejoices our soul. It rejoices our heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Enlightening the eyes. Enlightening the eyes. Anybody in the room wear contact lenses? It looks like about a third wear contact lenses or glasses of some sort. And when you wear contact lenses or glasses and you take those off and you look out at the world, what does the world look like? Does, does it look like a blur to you? Maybe you could see some things. Maybe you can't see very much at all. My wife's prescription's pretty, pretty intense on her contacts, and so there's not much she can see. So I, you know, when I was courting her, I wanted her to leave her contacts out frequently as I would come around so that I would have a better shot, right? But, but you, you look around it, and you see the world, and all of a sudden, you put those glasses on, you put those contacts in, and all of a sudden, things become clear, and you can see. That may not be what the writer intended because contacts and glasses were not around, but it, it's something of what I think he's saying to us here where it enlightens the eyes. Perhaps you've been out at night and you've been trekking through the woods, whether you've been on a hike or you've been hunting or you've been doing something and you, and you had a flashlight, but it wasn't a good flashlight. It was just a measly little flashlight and, and, and the batteries were dying in it and you clicked that flashlight and you had it and it just barely would illuminate anything around. And all of a sudden, somebody brought along a really good flashlight, and that really good flashlight lit up the woods, and you could see again. And it enlightened your path so that you could see where you were going. You could see what was taking place. That's what the Bible should be to us. The Bible should enlighten our eyes. As we look around the world and we see what's taking place, the Bible enlightens us so that we can see and so that we can see clearly. We see also here, it says, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. We understand that not all truth is contained in the Bible, but that everything that is in the Bible is true. The Bible doesn't tell us how to fix the carburetor on our car. The Bible doesn't tell us how to mend a broken leg. The Bible doesn't tell us many things that we understand in life, but what the Bible does tell us is true and we can trust it and we can put our faith in it and we can look at what it says and we can rely upon it. It says of all of this in verse 10, it is more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Notice what the writer's doing here. The writer's focused on materialism here in verse 10. In verse 10, it says, it's more desirable than gold, even much fine gold. 
And then in the next portion, it says, it's also sweeter than honey, even the drippings of the honeycomb. He's saying that you should desire scripture more than you desire all materialism, all wealth, all the possessions that the world has to offer because this book, scripture, God's command, God's words are better for you than gold, even the fine gold. And he says to you, it should taste better. It should be more desirable for you than honey, even the best tasting honey that is out there. Even the pleasures that the world has to offer, this should delight your soul in a better way than honey does, even the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. Warned of what? Warned of what not to do. Warned of what to stay away from. And in keeping them, there is great reward. Here we see what David would say to us about God's word. You see the outline. How many of you would like to have the secret to life? The secret that tells you how you can revive your soul, make yourself wise, rejoice your heart, enlighten your eyes, endure forever, be warned, and then have great reward because you kept what it said. You want that? You have it. How often do we read it? How often do we memorize it? How often do we meditate on it? How often do we apply it? We have the Bible. It's not just in this passage that it talks about the Bible, but you have to decide for yourself really whether you believe what the Bible says. Because if this book is really God's infallible, inerrant word as spoken through men so that it is God-breathed, then you can trust it. If this book is that some others would say to you that it's just human authors writing stories trying to explain the inexplicable and that it has errors and that it may have wisdom, but it's really just a book. If you have a low view of scripture, then this book cannot be trusted. You have to decide what you believe about the Bible. Is it God's word? Is it true? What does the Bible claim for itself? And not only in Psalm 19, but also in the rest of the Bible, it makes claims. For example, the Old Testament uses the phrase, thus saith the Lord, over 3,500 times. Let me just give you a few of those. Isaiah 1, verses 1 and 2, says the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. It goes on to say, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Jeremiah 1, 1 and 2, the words of Jeremiah. It goes on to say, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon. Ezekiel 1, 2, and 3, on the fifth day of the month. Notice the specificity. It was the fifth year, and it says in verse 3, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest. Hosea 1, 1, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea. Joel 1, 1, the word of the Lord that came to Joel. Obadiah 1, 1. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God. Jonah 1.1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Micah 1.1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah. Zephaniah 1.1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah. Haggai 1.1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai. Zechariah 1.1. The word of the Lord came to the prophet. Malachi 1.1. The word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi on and on we could go with the Old Testament making claims the word of the Lord came through the Old Testament. It's not just the Old Testament. You look at what the New Testament would say to us. The New Testament says to us in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. 
that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We'll come back to that in a future sermon. Second Peter 1, 19 through 21 says, and we have the prophetic word, more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. You hear the analogy there thinking about enlightening the eyes. It's a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The New Testament makes claims that scripture was God-breathed. It was inspired by God. That prophecy was written as men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16 also makes a similar claim when it says to us, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, him as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them in these matters. This is really funny here where Peter is saying that Paul writes some things that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Notice what Peter's doing here though in comparing Paul's writings to other scriptures. Peter is telling us that Paul's writings are scripture and compared to other scriptures. We have 2 Timothy, we have Peter, we have the understanding that the Old Testament makes the claims that it is the word of the Lord, that the New Testament claims that scripture is God-breathed. We understand these things, but what did Jesus say about the Bible? I mean, that's ultimately what we want to go to, right? That's the trump card. What did Jesus have to say about the Bible? Well, in Matthew 15, 4, he said, for God commanded, honor your father and your mother, citing the Ten Commandments. In Matthew 22, 43, he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? He's citing Psalm 110. In Mark 12, 26 and 27, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses? So when you go into a discussion with somebody that tells you about a hypothesis that exists in which Moses was not the author of the law, you can quote back Jesus who says the book of Moses and in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Look at Matthew 26, 52 through 54, where Jesus said to them, put your sword back in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I could appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus had a high view of scriptures. Luke 24, 44, where he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Here we see that Scripture in Psalm 19 makes claims for itself. And throughout the rest of Scripture, there are claims that this is God's Word, that this is God's revelation to us to tell us about Him, and it is sure, it is true, and it can be trusted. That moves us to the application, then how do we respond? How do we respond to general revelation and special revelation? Well, the proper response can be seen here in verse 12. Verse 12, it says, who can discern his errors? Well, now that should cause us to respond in humility immediately. Who can discern 
his errors. Well, if I can't even discern my errors, then there's a humility that comes to me when I study theology, when I understand how great God is, when I understand how sinful I am, when I understand how fallen I am in my own sinfulness that I cannot even discern my own errors. If I can't discern my own errors, I can't trust my own judgment, and therefore I need to renew my mind daily through reading God's Word, through having a personal quiet time, a personal relationship with Jesus to allow my mind to be renewed by His truth. So I respond to theology not with an arrogance that says, look at me and look what I know, not with something that says, look at the facts, look at how I'm an expert in any particular area, but I respond with humility. I fall down on my knees and I cry out and I say, God, I'm not worthy. I cannot even discern my own errors. So the psalmist here prays, declare me innocent from hidden faults. God, the things I do that I don't even realize I'm doing. God, the times I mistreat people, the times I say or do things, the hidden things that I don't even recognize in my own life as sin. Father, forgive me of those things. In verse 13, he says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin. What is presumptuous sin? It's sin in which we presume upon the grace of God. It's those besetting sins that have enslaved us to the point that we do them. We know they're wrong. We understand we should not do them, and yet we do them anyway because we desire the sin more than we desire God. And as we do, we presume upon the grace of God so that he would forgive us of it. And in that point, we have to refer back to Paul where he says, should I sin more so that grace may abound even more? And he says, may it never be. It's those presumptuous sins that enslave us. It are those presumptuous sins, as it talks about here in verse 13, that have dominion over me. And the prayer of the psalmist here is, Lord, keep back your servant from the presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Look at verse 14 as he closes out here and he says, let the words of my mouth, everything that I say, the meditations of my heart, the thoughts that I have in my inward being, the things that I desire, who I am, those meditations, allow them, Lord, to be acceptable in your sight as though a sacrifice would be acceptable or unacceptable. And we think back immediately to Cain and Abel and who brought an acceptable sacrifice and who didn't. And we understand the prayer here is that my words, that my thoughts, that my meditations would be acceptable in your sight. And he cries out, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer think about leadership. We have defined leadership here at Cedarville as the stewardship of one's God-given gifts, abilities, and opportunities in seeking to influence and to serve others. Are you using your opportunities to serve others, to influence others with words that are acceptable to God? Are you guiding others in a way that will be pleasing to God? Are the meditations of your heart pleasing to God? When you move off away from somebody, do you have a conversation about them and do you say things about them that would not be pleasing to God? Do you say things or recount stories in such a way that you exalt yourself and you put others down as the words that come out of your mouth would not be pleasing to the person, would not be pleasing to God? Is it the meditations of your heart that demonstrate the haughtiness of spirit or the pride or the arrogance that may creep in? Or are the words of your mouth and the very meditations of your heart demonstrating a godly humility of life? Is your desire to serve others? 
Here he prays that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Are your words acceptable? Are your meditations or your thoughts acceptable? I close with this final thought. I started trying to think how I would sum this up in a thought that would be provoking. Here it is. Do you spend more time reading Facebook than God's book? It's not just Facebook. But I thought in in our society, in our culture, with Facebook feeds, I'm often like you. I like to see what's going on. I'll click on a Facebook feed. I'll scroll up. I'll pay attention to it. Something will grab my attention. I'll look a little more. Next thing you know, you've wasted some time on a computer screen. Am I prompted more to look at what's on Facebook or somewhere else than I am to look into God's book? Do I look at God's word and do I, as I read it, say to myself, you know what, I want to dig into this deeper. I need to study this more. I'm not sure exactly what this is saying. And I want to understand this because God thought it was important enough to put it here. I need to be able to explain what this means. Isaiah 40 verse 8 tells us, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It's a struggle for all of us. It's a challenge for all of us. But what I hope that I've communicated to you clearly today is that this book is a book that has God as its author, Jesus Christ as its hero, salvation as its message, and we should read it daily. We should meditate upon it. We should memorize it, and we should apply it. Now, this is not the last sermon on God's Word. We'll come back in about a week And we'll talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. And I'm going to close out that message with four main points of application backed by Scripture that I want you to write down and apply to your life. But for today, I just want to ask you the question, are you reading God's book? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, as we come to you, Father, we confess that far too often we get busy with the things of the world. Far too often, Lord, we get sidetracked, we get caught up in the cares of the world. Lord, far too often we care more about sports than we do about your word. Lord, there are things that distract us and all of us have our temptations, so we confess to you, God, that we probably don't take your word serious enough. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand and to acknowledge and to take delight and to memorize and to meditate upon what your word says to us. Father, when we need our souls to be revived, may we go to your word. When we need our hearts to rejoice, may we turn to your word. May we rely upon your word because in it is truth, in it is wisdom, in it will enlighten our eyes, will make our way steady. God, we thank you for the Bible and may we never take it for granted. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.